Ladies and gentlemen, the winner of the number one stand-up comedy podcast on Good Pods this week, it is Uncredible Adventures. Please welcome to the stage your host, Cornelius! Hello and welcome to the Uncredible Adventures podcast with me, your host Cornelius. Thank you very much for tuning in this week. I'm really pleased to have you with me. Indeed, a celebration. We were uh, or are currently the number one stand-up comedy podcast on Good Pods. Hi everyone, Cornelius here. So I just listened back to what you're about to hear and it strikes me that it sounds like I've been paid to read a script on behalf of Good Pods. And I just wanted to point out that I haven't. I'd gladly take some money from Good Pods or indeed anyone that wants me to wants to pay me to read any advert out. But what you're about to hear comes straight from the heart. It was genuinely how I feel about this great and interesting app that's trying to do great things for the podcast market. Hi all, Cornelius. So I listened to that bit back that I just recorded and it sounds to me a bit like the lady doth protest too much, methinks. So by way of trying to prove that I'm not being paid to sponsor good pods i want to just talk briefly about itunes and to let you know that the latest version of itunes now comes installed with mac os mojave (laughs) upgrade today and get your favorite music films tv programs and podcasts itunes is also where you can join apple music and stream or download and play offline over 50 million songs ad free and right now if you use the code Uncredible Pod was sponsored by Apple. You can get over 20% off your first. Good Pods, if you're not familiar with it, their aim is to be the Goodreads or the Facebook of podcasts. It's a podcast listening platform that also allows people to review, rate, share and view what their friends are listening to. Well worth checking out if you are interested in discovering new podcasts and perhaps going slightly off the beaten track and things that you might never ever be exposed to if you stick purely to the whatever iTunes or Google Podcasts or Spotify indeed are telling you the most popular podcasts of the week. Very surprised and pleased to see that based on the activity this week, Uncredible Adventures has come in at the number one spot for stand-up comedy. Now, I do need to qualify that statement. This is largely due to, we could thank Apple for the interesting um, ways that they force you to categorise your podcast. Not, not an easy thing to do, to, to put your podcast into a category. Chosen comedy for this podcast, it's not entirely comedy. I'm not sitting here desperately trying to make you laugh Certainly, I I think this podcast should be humorous, it should be enjoyable, and there's bits that are going to tickle you and you're going to find interesting, but I'm not desperately here begging for you to laugh. What really I'm doing is making the podcast that I want to listen to. It's more of a feeling I'm going for. It's that intimacy, that uh, curiosity, that connection, and that conversation that you have with a good friend, someone that you've known for a while and has got some interesting stories. And the, the comedy... There used to be just comedy as a genre on iTunes, who they really lead the way when it comes to podcast categories. Uh, they've actually expanded that out, and there's three now, and this is the reason why we've had a look in at all. So the comedy categories that you find every podcast is categorised under at the moment is either improv, uh, which is short for improvised, or comedy interviews, and the final one, stand-up. So what do you pick for a podcast like this? Well, it's not improv. Uh, This is structured. I'm not making this up on the spot. I don't pretend to be. I'm not interviewing anyone. So it's not a comedy interview. So I guess stand-up is the last category that I could fall into. A bit more like (laughs) sit-down comedy, if anything. But we'll take it. Look, we rank number one. And that's thanks to you lovely people who have been listening, who have been sharing, who have been commenting, and who have been ranking this podcast. Please, please do it really means a hell of a lot to me hit the follow button wherever you get your podcast and if you leave me a review anywhere on the internet i'll be more than grateful if if it's good that is leave me a good review if it's negative you've got something bad to say uh, if you've got a problem with what i'm doing or if you've got some friendly advice or, or ways that i can improve the show again please send me those on twitter that'll be great post those reviews on twitter tag me i'll respond i'll talk to you i really want to build this podcast i want to improve it 
and I need to know what you think. If you're new to listening, I'm really pleased to have you along. Thank you for finding us. Thank you for giving us a go. We've got a few old episodes in the bank now, which you might want to filter through, but possibly you've you've already read the blurb. This is a happy and positive and curious podcast. You're going to hear funny, mostly true stories woven with interesting facts and original thought. Each Each week, your British host, Cornelius, that's me, makes a cultural exploration through a different topic, exploring the human through humour and cynical observation. A weekly single-host structured conversational monologue podcast, which is probably why we've had to categorise it as stand-up comedy, because no one knows what on earth all that other stuff I said was. We're the other side of Easter now. I hope you had a nice break. I hope you had a bit of downtime. We were on holiday last week and then had the long bank holiday here in the UK. Back to work this week. I hope you had a nice break and a bit of a chance to recharge and connect with your family wherever you are. And I don't know about you, but certainly here Sunday night or Monday night it was because of the bank holiday. When the holiday's over, when the thing you've been looking forward to for so long is past... And it's back to work, it's back and it's back to work, it's back to real life. It's very easy to feel down and blue and start to feel like you've got nothing to look forward to. It's very easy when the thing you've been concentrating on for so long and focusing towards your holiday or it might be your birthday or other special events or just having some time off or Maybe you've been to see a show that you were really interested in, been thinking about for a long time, anything like that. And you come to the back end of it and you're coming back to real life. And I used to suffer from this a lot where you'd sit there and you think, I've got nothing to look forward to. I've got nothing coming up. That was it. I was so focused on having this holiday or this event. And now it's done. And I've got nothing to look forward to. I don't know where to go. And I I realised I got some advice from someone a few years ago and it absolutely has changed my world. And I'm going to share that with you now and it's whenever you're feeling that feeling of I've got nothing to look forward to the best you know the holiday's over I've just had a really nice time and now it's over all the rest of it you just need to remind yourself is have I ever felt like this before I had this same train of thought and these same type of feelings and the chances are yeah you've had it you've had it a lot if you haven't it right now you've had it many many times in your life and that fact is the key to being able to deal with it because totally flipped it in my head when someone said to me the way you need to look at it is if you're feeling like that and you've felt like that a lot of times before well the very fact that you're feeling like that now means that all the other times that you felt like it that you felt you had nothing to look forward to the best was behind you and in fact those were all false because they all led to this holiday you've just had and really enjoyed so even if you can't see anything in the future now even if you can't and got anything booked or you can't think what the next break is there is something just around the corner there's something for you to look forward to there's something good coming there's another break there's another holiday there's something will come before you know it and it will you'll pass straight through it and you'll be on the other side and you'll be feeling like this again don't focus too much on that bit, but focus on the bit here to say there is always something new. There's always something coming. There's always a reason to be looking forward to something. And these blues will not last forever. Get back to work. Do your best. And I promise you the next good thing, the next thing you're excited for, the next thing that you look forward to is just around the corner. So we got back from our holiday. Mercifully, we cleaned the house and stuff before we left. So it was quite nice to get back to the perfectly clean house again until we got back and moved all of the bags and dirty clothes and all the things we'd taken away on holiday carried them back into the house and completely junked it up immediately but one of the first things I had to do was to go to the supermarket and get some food we didn't have any food in and I had a moment where I jumped back in the car reversed out the drive I was halfway across the road and it suddenly struck me I don't have a pound coin for a bloody trolley at Tesco and I was so frozen in that moment, I started looking in the in the ashtray, I started looking in the cup holders, looking for this pound coin. Jumped out of my skin because someone honked me quite rightly. Uh, a car had come along, gave me a big honk. Why, why, are we, why are you reversing out your drive and stopping in the middle of the road, you idiot? So I pulled over, had to get out the car, back in the house. I need a pound coin. Has anyone got one? We're searching around, couldn't find one anywhere. Eventually got this pound coin, got back in the car and, and back towards the supermarket and it 
really struck me like, why do we, why, why do I put up with this? Why do I put up with this racing around trying to find a pound coin? Because I've been there before and you can't get a trolley, you can't lo- unlock it without the coin. They're absolutely useless inside. They won't break change for you or help you in any way. And well, how insulting is that? I'm going to go and spend all this money on shopping. I need a trolley in order to fill it with things that I'm going to pay you for. And before I even got in the store, before I even done anything, you're accusing me of, of stealing, you're accusing me of not being trustworthy, you're accusing me of, I don't know what, being the type of person that wouldn't leave the trolley where it should be. But it reminded me that I have actually read about this, and the it's called the self-governing trolley test, and it's, it's a litmus test, basically about whether you're a, a decent person, whether you can self-govern whether you are uh, net positive good to society or net negative can you and it works like this so if you've got a trolley assuming there's no pound coin and you've got a trolley and you take it back to your car and you fill up your car and you've got two choices here you can either take five seconds to walk across to the trolley bay and put it in the trolley bay or you can just abandon it where you are and drive off now the right considerate and thoughtful thing to do of course for everyone else that has to use the car park and for the people that work at the supermarket is to take the trolley and put it in the trolley bay and it requires a very small sacrifice you have to go a little bit out of your way you have to take a little bit longer you have to walk a few steps that you wouldn't but it's not that difficult to do it's well within your reams of possibility but actually in the absence of a pound coin there's nothing making you do that it's not illegal to leave it where it is it's it's purely a moral dilemma you're you're well within your rights just to leave a trolley there's going to be absolutely no repercussions whatsoever for just abandoning your trolley wherever it is so you've got a very simple decision there do you do you make a very small personal sacrifice for the good of society or do you not do you just walk away and think someone else can deal with that. No one's making me do this. And what's the? Que- I'll, I'll be honest. That's the question. I'll be honest. I've done both at different points in my life. In different times, I've done both. I, I certainly the vast majority of the time, I've taken it back and put it in the trolley bay. But I've abandoned my trolley before for various reasons. Maybe I shouldn't admit that because when you look at this, this is the litmus test. This is where there's no punishment for where there's no punishment for not doing the decent thing and there's no reward for doing the decent thing. This all comes down to your ability to self-govern and that is when no one is going to... And the theory goes that if you don't take your trolley back, if you're someone that just leaves your trolley there, you are... I've read it somewhere, it said you're absolutely... You're no better than an absolute savage who can only be made to do what's right by threatening with the law I said a little bit strong but it, it's it's kind of a, it's got a good point and you can go round and round in circles and I'm going to talk a little bit about morality on this episode but, but I'm interested how how do you fit do you did you pass the the trolley test the self-governing trolley test or didn't you I've got so I remember getting involved with a new friendship group when I was in my teen in my teens and I started hanging out with a a new group of people started to get to know them and we were getting on really well I thought everything was fine right up until we went to a McDonald's and we all ate in the McDonald's and then at the end of the meal these two or three people are with they all got up and just walked away leaving the table completely uncleared they left all their rubbish lying across the table and it's exactly the same test I think god you are not raised right if you leave your stuff all over the table and I actually raised it one I said I said to them why are you leaving all that there Some, you know someone's got to come and pick that up the guys here they're not earning enough as it is they've got a hard enough job anyway don't take you two seconds to pick it up and I mean, this guy one of my one of my mates he said to me oh well well I leave if I leave that there I'm making a job for someone it's a job keeping someone employed so actually it's a positive thing to do I thought about that for a second and it kind of made sense to me. So what I did was there was a bit of a half a brick on the floor. So I picked it up and I smashed him straight in the middle of the face with it. I know what you're thinking. Yeah, overreaction perhaps. But 
you've got to understand, if I didn't do that, the ambulance drivers would be out of a job. Are you still with me? Have you passed the trolley dilemma? Do you put your trolley back even though there's absolutely no punishment or reward? Can you self-govern? Do you chuck your rubbish away when you go to a fast food restaurant? So what about this one? This is a, another pretty common moral dilemma and you, you you'll have seen the pictures where you've got a you've got a train coming down a track and there's five people that the train is going to hit on the track and you've got control of a switch and if you pull the lever you can switch the rails and send the train on a different route but there's only one person on that track there's no other way to stop the train you're not responsible for the train that's happened you don't know any of the people but you are left with this decision to make do you pull the lever and knowingly, willingly condemn one person to death by your own hand? Or do you do nothing and allow five people to die? It's not an easy one to answer because whenever you think you've kind of got an answer and you think, no, this is the right thing to do, we need to uh, sacrifice the one person. And although, yeah, I need to make a personal decision, I'm not happy with that, that's the right thing to do someone can always scale that question up someone can always up the ante and, and increase the odds so the reality of the the situation the way you answer it is not to engage at all because in real life in that split second you would panic you do something completely rash either way you're going to watch a, a grisly death <laughs> roll itself out in front of you and you're going to spend the rest of your life pouring over that split second decision Guessing and second-guessing yourself. So there's a cheerful thought. Anyway, I remember we went on a team build once with work. And one of the exercises, we all had to imagine we were in a hot air balloon. So the whole group of us, we were in a hot air balloon. And the, the hot air balloon was was going down. It wasn't floating. And we had to start making decisions about who we were going to throw out of the hot air balloon. So we all had fictional characters, I think. And you had to fight your case for why you should stay. And ultimately, everyone had to make a decision of who else to throw out. And quite a few people started looking and saying, well, look, me, I am the, the heaviest person. So actually, by by throwing one of me out, you can potentially save two other people. I looked at it from a slightly different angle. And I said, like, if any of you skinny little weeds comes anywhere near me and thinks you're going to throw me out this hot air balloon, I promise you, you're going in the, over the edge before me. Just goes goes to show, yeah. You do all your moral reasoning, you can do uh, all your careful planning and all your careful planning. But if you haven't got the power and the authority to carry it out, then that is you are peeing in the wind. There's another one you see as well. Uh, certainly, I've seen it, and it it goes. They're all a little bit different, but it basically says, look, there's a button. If you press this button, you get hundred thousand dollars. But someone. A random person, every time you press it, a random person around the world dies. So the two-part question is, would, would you press it at all? For $100,000, would you press a button knowing that someone else would die? And the second one is, how many times are you going to press it? And you can spend a long time really thinking about that and wondering. What's important to know is the, these billionaires, the really rich people, the, the people that rule this world... These guys, they are spam hitting that button. While you're standing there pondering, do I press it? If I press it once, I can pay off my mortgage. And I've got one, you know, one person that I'm probably never going to find out about. You've got someone sitting there with absolutely no morals who is spamming that button. In real life, they're doing this. And, you know, they're probably paying other people to do it. But that's exactly how these guys think. Hit that button as many times as you like. One, one life for £100,000 worth it. I think, fortunately, or, or unfortunately, maybe, depending on how you view it, you're never going to be able to have to actually make that decision. It's all theoretical. But what about something that might happen? I did ask on my Twitter this week. I said, if you were in a big chain store and you're given too much change, do you report it? And I got a few responses, which actually surprised me. Because for me, that answer, big chain store, too much change, do I report it? I, I kind of, all I... The moral dimension for me and all I was really thinking about was am I too worried about the shareholders of some giant corporate entity giving me giving me an extra $5, giving me an extra £5? And the answer is no, I'm not really too worried about it. But the response I got on Twitter 
a lot of people were talking about the cashier, the purple person running the till, and the fact that the organisation was not just going to write that off. They were not just going to allow it to go and not care about it. That would come down on the cashier, and it becomes a very personal thing. And I can really, really buy into that. That does make a lot of sense to me. And I, and I think it links back the question before about this hundred thousand pounds if you hit the button. When it says someone dies, that's if that's just a faceless person that you don't know. It's very difficult to to feel too much concern because you know there's there's billions of people in the world. I'm not thinking of any of them. If you start to put a face on it, if you had to meet that person, if you had to, every time you hit the button, someone random died, and then you had to go and, even if they didn't know it was you that did it, you had to meet their family and understand, you had to attend their funeral and realise what you had done. It makes it a lot more difficult, doesn't it? And that's something to do with human connection. That's something to do with being a person. It's much easier to make decisions in the abstract, much, much harder to do it with a, another human being with hopes and dreams and family and things they want to achieve on the other end of that button and perhaps that's that's part of the 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 biggest moral question of all is are you someone generally that strives to make people feel better or are you the type of person that strives to make people feel worse i was upstairs the other day and i could hear a bit of commotion outside hear some like uh, some blokes talking excitedly and chatting so I looked out and I could I could really clearly hear this conversation because a car had pulled up and it had a bit of damage on the front wing and there were three blokes and one of them was clearly the driver another guy was standing there doing nothing and then he had his mate and from what I could gather from the conversation at some point on the journey they'd just been on quite recently I think in the last couple of couple of minutes the guy that was driving had somehow clipped his car on something. He'd hit a wall or clipped off a curb or done something and had a bit of a jarring accident. Not the type of thing that smashes the car up completely, but dents a bumper, maybe a bit of broken glass, maybe hopefully not some structural damage, but a minor bump, which can happen to anyone. And he had this little mate, the one that I could hear that was making all the noise, was absolutely determined to make sure that this guy really, really regretted what happened and understood the full weight of it and really suffered for the fact that he damaged his car and it was going to it was going to cause him <laughs> problems through his life. And he was doing it in a really underhand way by firstly making a big deal of it. Oh, mate, I can't believe oh, it looks really bad. Oh, and this is broken and this really hyping up the problem. And secondly, he was say he he was trying to pretend that he was help. And this is the worst part for me that he was trying to pretend that he had the guy's best wishes at heart. He said, "Oh, I'm going to do an appraisal. I'm going to look at it. I'm going to try. And, I need to work out what this damage is. You know, oh, oh if you've bent your wishbone, then that's a write-off, mate. If you've got, well, I'm going to." And he had his phone out and he had his light on. He was doing whatever he could, and the guy was not rising to the bait. He was, I could see his face from where I was, and he was pretty depressed, but he was just keeping his mouth shut. He didn't want to think about it. He knows he's damaged. There's nothing, you can't undo the last 10 seconds. If ever you've done something like that, you realise very, very quickly, you can't undo what's just happened. And he had this little mate absolutely determined to wind him up, to make him feel bad about it, to, to, to cause him some emotional distress. And you, you see that behaviour quite a lot and it's born out presumably I can only presume it's born out of jealousy or insecurity they were quite young lads and I think I'm guessing in fact in fact I put money on the fact that the lad who was on the wind up didn't have a car and was really jealous that his mate did and was absolutely delighted to see something bad happen to him that's not a good way to live your life and that's one thing I learned about dealing with people making friends being popular and influencing people is that no one likes receiving bad news. So unless sharing some criticism or sharing some bad news genuinely can help someone, if you genuinely need to warn them or need to be honest with them in order to help them improve or change something, you should always be positive. You should always minimise something. If you're in the car with someone and they clip the curb and they've got a big scrape in their hollow wheel and they're asking you, oh, how bad does it look? The correct answer is always, nah, not too bad at all, mate. There's nothing. That's fine. And I think that's one of the, the single best tips I'm going to share on this 
on this episode is don't be the bearer of bad news if you don't need to be. Always be positive, always minimise something, work to try and make people feel better, not to make people feel worse. And ultimately, you'll make yourself feel better. Without further ado, my pleasure to introduce you to the Uncredible Adventures podcast. Don't really much watch much TV. We have we have got a TV, but we use it mainly for the smart functions. I certainly haven't got satellite. Don't think there's free view on there either. But we do watch some of the catch up TV and things from various channels. It's not I've not got anything against TV or not much against TV really. It just they're always it, there always seems to be something better to do for me to sit and watch tv i never have the time to do it and if i if i do there's generally i'd rather be reading something or listening to something or or doing something but there's a funny thing that happens when you're not busy so last week we were away on holiday obviously i'm not working i'm away from the house so lots of the stuff i'd normally do around the house i don't have to do total relaxation sitting around not doing much waiting for the next meal enjoying the sunshine and there's almost, I think the more lazy you get, the more lazy you want to be. I'm sure there's a, there's an adage somewhere that says, if you, if you want something done, give it to a busy person. And that's definitely true. I had, had, in fact, I had someone miss a, miss a meeting at work, back at work this week. Someone missed a meeting that we were scheduled in. A team's meeting, they just didn't show up. And the first thing I think in my head is this person's not doing much because the only time that I ever miss anything like that is with... I'm as if I'm not really present and, and not really working and it's Easter. So I kind of understand it, but yeah, anyhow, I, this, this not doing much and being lazy really started to um, affect me last week. And it got to the point where even reading or listening to something seemed like too much effort. I wanted something really brain dead and, and easy. And I'd be scrolling on my phone for hours and hours and looking at things like that. And I, I thought, oh, no, I, that's even that is almost too active. I want to lie back and can be completely receptive and just have something fed to me. So I started to think, well, I want to watch some TV. But it was fairly specific. I didn't want to tackle anything difficult or anything that I had to think about too much. No, no Netflix documentaries or anything clever like that. So I, I started having to click around and I found an app. Now, forgive me, I'm sure it's been out for years and everyone knows about it. Completely new to me, UK TV Play, which is a UK, <laughs> if the name didn't give it away, it's it's a UK-based app showing uh, generally British TV programs, which I don't know many of them, but some of them I've seen around. And one of the things that caught my eye on there is to have vintage EastEnders, and EastEnders, for anyone not familiar with it, is a long-running soap opera set in the East End of London much-loved BBC programme with a really long history. And what they've got on this app is they have vintage EastEnders, which presumably is probably stuff from when I used to watch EastEnders. So the Mitchell brothers, Oi, oi, mate, yeah, my pub. It's family, it's a family thing. And that had Peggy Mitchell and who else? Dirty Den, Dot Cotton. Yeah. So... And, and and back then the I mean originally so the 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 intro scene for EastEnders the intro sequence is sort of a slowly rotating map of London and you can you can see the Thames and I remember it always used to be grey and blue and then they rebranded it at some point and kind of turned the river green had a sort of yellow filter over it but this vintage EastEnders weirdly it actually looks a bit more modern is is got the blue and blue and grey cover. And I had a few mixed feelings about it because it's obviously a BBC show. And this app isn't run by the BBC. They've got their own app. This is a third-party app run presumably for commercial interests. It's got a lot of adverts on there. So it's it's not a it's not a license fee-paced app. It's, it's funded by adverts. So I can only guess that the BBC have have sold sold the rights or are lending this program for, for some kind of money to the app in order for them to make some ad revenue off it and, and fund the BBC, which makes makes sense because the BBC is they 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 
seem to have their funding cut. They've had issues with license fees for pensioners and various things. And I know they're under a lot of strain to do more for less, as, as is everything. And they're under quite intense political attack. And, 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 and even, I would say, attack from the man in the street. A lot of people I talk to are really against the BBC because it's it, effectively it's another tax you pay. I think about £151 a year, something like that. Yeah, it's about £10, £11 a month for a licence fee, which is, is almost impossible not to pay. I think, you know, you only have to pay it if you watch watch it or listen to the, the radio stations. But it, it's it's so all over the place and they've got... And they'll, they'll come and knock on your door. I know people that get hundreds of letters and we... I pay a license fee and I do listen to the radio, but like I said, we've got a TV that doesn't, doesn't have BBC on it. We haven't done for years and I've always paid it. So I can see why people object to that. So it sort of makes sense to me that it's got to be a positive thing under those pressures. If they're finding ways to monetize some of the shows they've already made and can use that to fund continuing the service, then that's a step in the right direction. It means that you still get high quality programming and the license fees hopefully won't have to go up. Presumably that's what they're doing. I started to think about that, but it, it, led, me, it led me down a bit of a, a chain of thought, thinking there's, there's a lot of people that want to abolish the license fee. And if you abolish the license fee, you effectively abolish the BBC. Because one of the great things it's got going for it is that it's independent. And, and that... <laughs> That's quite a it's quite a hot take just to say that because actually again I think a lot of people I talk to who don't like the BBC or don't like the BBC license fee one of the things they object to is they think stuff like news coverage in particular is is not balanced or it's biased it's one sided it's not neutral and and the BBC is run by a charter and one of the key things they have to be is is neutral and it's it's what makes it such a great asset but so why does everyone I talk to and everyone I'm talking about from people from both sides of the political spectrum with all sorts of ideas and opinion or none at all, everyone seems to think that it's biased. It's, oh, that, you know, that left wing BBC or that, you know, the BBC always supporting right wing. It, it, you hear it from both sides and it's probably anyone who has got an opinion on this probably disagreeing with me here. I, I guarantee it. Whichever side you're on, you say I'm. At, you know, it's, it's absolutely absurd for me to suggest that it is biased towards the other side. But I, I tell you now, everyone thinks that, and I, I think the reason everyone thinks that is because it's very different. The point of being neutral is that you have to give equal weight to all arguments. Well, you don't. You don't. Not all arguments. And this this gets a bit tricky again. You have to give. The mo what you should do to be neutral is you give the most weight to the the absolute truth. But of course, there's no such thing as truth. Everything is opinion. Everything is point of view. For instance, I'm sure there's many many people who have listened to a short portion of this podcast and think it's the most boring, pretentious, poorly put together amateur production they've ever heard. But I also know there's some people that listen to this podcast and really really enjoy it. Are the people that subscribe? People that have listen to every single episode so i'm reaching uh, reaching the right people the people that that i want to reach and that's important to me and i hope you're one of them i hope you enjoy it so you've got an organization that everyone thinks is biased because if they give equal weight to, to two sides of an argument where there's ambiguity then what stands out to most people is not the side of the argument they agree with but the fact that there was airtime given to an alternate view and that always feels disproportionately heavily weighted on that side for there's there's probably some psychology in there maybe we'll get someone on interview them at some point at the same time it's attacks at a time when cost of living goes up and up and up and everyone people are forced to pay this license fee for what, for what they feel they don't, and, and most people feel that they don't use the service either. Because the other point about the BBC, and this is the most important bit for me, because all the problems are the things that make it really good. So th this fact that they are not funded through the government, so they're not government controlled, so they're not a mouthpiece for the government, they're independent. 
they're not funded through advertising, which means they, they can't be bought by advertisers in the way that, that almost all media can. I, I gave, you know, I gave, I gave Tesco a little bit of a kick in earlier. And all I can say is that if you know, Tesco, if Tesco want to ring me up, I'll read an advert at the beginning of this show about lovely, uh, Lovely chicken dinners you could buy from Tesco's and a two for a fiver or whatever it is. I'm probably way less likely to slag them off if that's a, a real possibility or something I could have. So you can't have advertisers. So no advertising means that they can remain independent and can report on everything and not be bought. And the other fact is that they can they can spend their money in ways that don't have to be commercially viable. And that's what the BBC should be for. This is my real strong opinion. The BBC should be about bringing things that probably aren't commercially viable because they've got too small an audience or, or, or of too limited general interest, but are really, really important. So there are things that Things that would get made on the BBC that just won't get made by by any other broadcaster in the world. I don't think America's got anything that works in the same way. So it, it means that the BBC is able to to roll the dice a bit, and it does. You know, it has lots of they have proper news coverage, so they're not turning into well, they shouldn't be. They're turning into clickbait and just recycling articles over and over again from Wikipedia. They actually have journalists. They have people in foreign countries. They have people who talk to locals and, and correspondents. And, and all of these things are really, really important. But the trouble with that, and it's a really obvious one, is that if you're only making really niche programmes, it wouldn't get made otherwise and have very small argument, a very small audience and wouldn't be commercially viable and if they wouldn't be commercially viable that probably means that the people you do reach is not worth the cost of what you're doing so it's a bad deal for everyone it's a bad deal if you if you only so i only i listen to radio 4 that's why the, the biggest thing i get from the bbc is i listen to radio 4 yeah i pay a full license fee of 150 pounds a year does that offer good value Actually, I probably argue it. It does, but but you get you get my you get my point. If they're if they are making they're serving a very niche audience, then the the cost to reach each member of that audience is disproportionately large. So what the what the BBC does is it has to compete, and EastEnders is one of the ways it competes. It has to make popular programming, not because there's any moral good or a positive thing to the country or, or great benefit that they can make a show that's popular like EastEnders. But it's because they have to, they're, they're running a popularity contest themselves and they have to have people liking the BBC. So for all the reasons that I was talking about where people say they don't like the BBC, there's got to be some bits of, oh yeah, but I like EastEnders or I like, I'm struggling to name another programme now, but they do lots of com comedy panel shows and things like that because they're cheap to make, frankly. That's the truth. Reality TV and panel shows are very, very cheap to make. They require minimal scripting. They don't require sets and props and lots of cameras. You can, they're very, very low cost, uh, but high, po high popularity. And they make that to, to, to give people a sense of, I get something from the BBC. The other thing they, which is a really good example of this is that they, they will, air sports matches sometimes so you'll have like during the world cup if england are playing you'll have the bbc will get some of the matches and you can watch them on the bbc and have bbc coverage now i'm absolutely against that i think that's an appalling waste of the license fee because effectively if you put a, a football match on bbc it's not shown on any on any of the other channels and you take away the opportunity for a different broadcaster to buy that piece of sport or piece of television and, and, and make money from it, either from subscription through Sky Sports or something like that, or advertising or a mix of both. And I, I don't think I don't think we, like I said, I'm not against TV and I'm not against people making money. It, it's a positive thing. It just seems very, very wasteful for the BBC to pay over the odds and bid against these organisations to air something that, like I said, it's, the whole point is, would it get made without the BBC? And yeah, absolutely, someone is always going to want to show 
the World Cup final, whether the BBC buys it or not, a TV station is going to have it. So that is not good use of license, license money. And EastEnders, if I'm honest, EastEnders, that's a great show. People love it. They could sell that 10 times if any other station would pick that up. I don't think there's a, a, another TV channel in the world that wouldn't want to pick up EastEnders. It's got a big enough audience and a, a, enough of a cult following that they could show a few adverts in it. No problem at all. It would pay for itself 10 times over. Now, I, I appreciate what I've, you know, poncy man sitting here saying, oh, I don't watch TV. We should get rid of EastEnders and we should get rid of the football matches. And I hope you appreciate that's not what I'm, I am a poncy man yet, but that's not what I'm saying. The point I'm making is that the BBC should be reserved for only doing things that wouldn't get made otherwise. That said, I, I absolutely, I'm, I'm strongly in favour of them. And I really hope in the long term that they can survive this, this political and cultural battle that's going on against them at the moment and they can come out the other side of it. And, and I'm going to just make one argument, and this is the closest I'm ever going to get to politics on this podcast. This is not about politics. We talk about culture, sure. We talk about the culture and, and, and the world that we live in in the UK, but um, I'm not going to veer into politics. It's the closest I'm going to get, but it goes like this. So the BBC are licensing out old episodes of EastEnders to this app that plays them with adverts in, raises some money, gives some of it presumably to the BBC and everyone's happy. And that's what would happen if we get rid of the license fee. The BBC is going to have to raise money. And the other thing is it's not the BBC anymore. You can't have the BBC without a license fee. As soon as you start to say that it has to be funded through themselves it either gets funded by some billionaire comes in and says oh i'll fund it in which case how can it be neutral it's it's clearly got an agenda there or they start getting funded by adverts or possibly subscription maybe in the absence of subscription though they get funded through advertising or something like that and i just want you to think really carefully about what that means if the bbc effectively gets sold gets made public gets given to shareholders, get given to people with an interest in making money out of it and is, is owned as a business by, by you and me, I'm sure, you know, be open to everyone to go and buy shares, but ultimately it's owned by people who are using it as a business to make money. And all of the assets go with it, including these old episodes of EastEnders, including the episodes of the royal family, of the, the Office, the original Office series, all this amazing TV they made, the, the rights... And the ownership of all of that intellectual property will go to these private shareholders, to these business people who own the BBC as soon as your license fee stops getting paid. And, and, and here's the issue, because this is the same problem with anything that gets privatised, anything that gets sold, is that you own that. You paid for that. If you live in the UK, if you've paid the license fee like I have and like everyone has to You've paid year in, year out to have these programs made. You've funded that. You own it. You have a stake in it. That should be for you. It should be available to you for free because you already paid for it. That's an asset that you own. So how are you going to sell that asset to a private business to then it, it doesn't belong to you? And at that point, if you want to watch it, you have to pay to subscribe you have to you have, you have to pay to watch it or you have to watch adverts. They're going to make you watch adverts to, to watch something that you've already paid for or they're just going to outright charge you for it that doesn't sit right does it I, I, I think about that and that's the same with anything anything that gets privatized well i'm going to move well away from that because we are veering into politics there but i'll go a bit a little bit light-hearted so i watched this app and i i started to have a flick through see what i wanted to to watch and i selected a program and started watching these adverts now when you don't watch tv you don't watch adverts and I'd been almost entirely, almost entirely have missed what TV adverts have become and how they're like. So I'm looking at them with a bit of fresh eyes here in the UK. The first advert that came on was Persil washing powder. And I, come on, I, Britain, I don't know what's happened, but someone explained this advert to me. It goes like this. It says, at Purcell, we, 
At Purcell, we want change just as much as you. And it shows people walking along a beach picking up litter. And they're getting muddy. So we want change as much as you do. And you get dirty litter picking. So it shows people getting their clothes all muddy because they're picking up litter. And that's why Purcell makes clothes even cleaner with just one wash. Is that just me? Or is there no logical leap there? It seems like they jumped on the eco bandwagon of saying, let's clean and save the planet. And then somehow, what, you imagine the advertising agency sitting there saying, we've got to jump on the eco. How, or how are we going to do it? We're going to talk about not using detergents in your clothes and using extra water and electricity and accepting that everyone has a bit dirtier clothes or that you don't need to <laughs> wear a, je a pair of jeans for a few weeks. No, no, no. That's all exactly what we don't want. What we, we want to encourage people to get their clothes so dirty that they have to wash them. And then let's just talk about what we're good at, which is we're really good at making clothes cleaner. I don't know. Mental loops there. I've, I'm talking about it. You're hearing about it. Maybe I'm going to go and buy personal next week. So perhaps that's exactly what they want. The next, the next advert was an advert for a cereal. That it, and you know what happens in an advert for a cereal. It's a type of cereal that's made out of cardboard. Not one of the, you know, not like a sugary, nice cartoon character cereal, but a serious adult. Something of people that, that worry about fiber and things like that, or even know what fiber is. So a serious cereal. And what happens in that advert? Well, someone walks through a nice kitchen. There's a jug of orange juice and some flesh daffodil, flesh daffodils. <laughs> Gosh, a flesh daffodil. Imagine that. No, there's fresh daffodils. And they pour this cereal into a bowl and put some milk in it. And the, the one thing that stands out to me is the punchline that said health and taste in a bowl. Health and taste in a bowl. Health and taste in a bowl. Utterly, utterly meaningless. Like, completely meaningless. Like, what? I, again, I beg you to think that someone has been paid to write that tagline and make that advert. And it must work because these guys are not stupid. So someone is buying that cereal because, oh, let's get that one. It's health and taste in a bowl. The final thing I noticed is that Renault, Renault, good old Renault 5, which is a cool car when I was a teenager, Renault have rebranded and they want us all to know that we've been saying the name Renault wrong all these years. Back when they had Papa and Clio, they didn't mind that much. But now Renault has been rebranded and you pronounce Renault Chinois. Chinois. So there you have it. Chinois. It, it, I used to go help someone. Her, her family used to call Nestle Nestles. Nestles. They, they grew up in Ireland. They used to call it Nestles. And the granddad absolutely used to swear blind. He'd say it was always it was Nestles. That's not, that's not what we made up. That's how, what it was always called. They changed it to Nestle. Now, I don't know if that's true or whether it's a bit like we all when we all read the first Harry Potter books and we used to talk about Hermione. Oh, that Hermione, she's good. And it wasn't until the movies came out. The movies came out and she introduced herself as Hermione that we all suddenly understood that word. I think that's what happened with Nestle and Nestles. So I did say I found the TV I was looking for and it was Red Dwarf. And if you've listened to my earlier podcast, you'll know that the Red Dwarf was the first book I ever read that took me from not being a reader to being a reader at like 13 years old. And I was on holiday and my cousin lent me the book and I was really bored and read it from cover, cover to cover. And for the first time I understood what it was like to really be absorbed and fully present in a book and start loving it. And, I, and at one point, the first couple of Red Dwarf books, I, I had, if, if you read one sentence out of any page for it, I could immediately tell you whereabouts it was in the book, what was happening, what happened immediately prior to that, what happened immediately after. They've got a really long history with it. I never really watched the TV show much. I watched it enough to recognize the characters, but was never really into it. But always used to have interesting conversations with friends who most of them would watch the TV show but not have read the books. And the, the, the books go into a lot of backstory that you just don't get, the nature of these things. You just don't get it in the TV show. doesn't explain too much, whereas the books really go into detail. And I, I got this smug 
<laughs> this smug look wiped off my face a little while back when I did, I pointed it out to one of my friends and I said, oh, well, you know, they, oh, in the books, it explains it all and, and you don't understand. And he said to me, actually, the TV show came first. I looked out, it's true. They made the TV show first and then wrote the books after, which is brilliant um, because they, they answer so many questions. Regardless, it's really good TV and, and for, I, you don't, you don't have a sense of humor if you don't enjoy the idea of two of the characters. They're, they're alone in deep space. They haven't seen a woman in centuries, but they're arguing about how they still have, uh, they still have the gift of the gab. They still know how to chat up women. And if they met, if, you know, if a woman was still existed on, on, in the universe, they'd be able to chat her up. And, and one of them leaves the room. And they've got these coffee machines in the corridor that that can talk. Well, it's a big red coffee machine, but it talks to you while you order your coffee. And so he goes out to his coffee and he starts trying to flirt with the coffee machines. It's all, it's all this is really good coffee. You know, or I do say to anyone, if they, they ever want a coffee, I say, go to Corridor 64B. <laughs> anyway, this um, coffee machine start, accuses him of, hey, are you trying to flirt with me? You are. You are trying to. You are trying to come on to me. You are trying to hit on me. Hit on me. And that is good. That's good comedy. If ever you've seen it, someone trying to can't even chat up a coffee machine without getting called out on it. Yeah, you touched my logo. My logo. But I, I, I was watching. I did watch the rest of this episode, and it made me think. So the the premise of the show, it very very brief, is that it's a huge mining ship called red dwarf that had depending on which source it had either between 1000 i think it's one that no 146 crew or 10,460 crew or 11 well, 14,600 whatever it is it had either either 10,000 plus crew or 100 crew but it had a lot of crew anyway a big mining ship. Uh, the star of the show was put into status. There was an accident on the ship, ship a radiation leak that killed every human on board. Um, spare this one guy that was in suspended animation and a cat that was sealed below in the cargo decks. And then for a million years, the ship travels through space while the radiation dissipates. And eventually the man comes out of suspended animation a million years lost into deep space, quite likely the last human being alive. Uh, and at the same time, the cat that was pregnant, that had been left underboard, has evolved. The, the species has evolved all the way to a sort of human-like cat that can talk because it's been watching videos and lived on a human ship all this time. They find a robot, Crichton, who is, they find him on a shipwreck. And then the fourth one is a, is a hologram. So that's the crew. And it raised the question to me, which I never really thought of before, because they, they, they fly the ship around. So you've got other characters like the ship's computer, Holly, and the scutters that do things, but they fly the ship around fine. So I asked the question on Reddit. I said, why, why does the ship need such a large crew? Why does Red Dwarf need such a large crew when you've got four people and the computer seem to fly it around fine? Why were there thousands of people on board? And during that episode, or possibly the one before, Crichton talks about there being 2,000 toilets. So if there's 2,000 toilets, you've got to assume there's at least, well, I don't know, how many, how many people per toilet? What's a good ratio? I don't know. In my house, we've got six people and one toilet, but let's say one toilet per person. There's at least 2,000 people. So who were the 2,000? So I went to Reddit, and it was great to see. I'm not really that into Red Dwarf. I've got to be honest. I love the books, but... Not thought about it for years, and I've enjoyed the TV show, but it's not going to become my regular. But there are people, who, there's still a very active community on Reddit of people who love the show and watch it. So I, I asked the question, worried that I might have got gunned down by people being offended, like I was questioning the premise of the show. But the reason I felt safe to ask the question was because from reading the books, I know the guys that wrote it, Rob Grant and Doug Naylor, are really smart. and Everything will be explained. I knew there wouldn't be a gap. So how can four people run a ship that was that had at least 2,000 crew originally? What were the rest of the crew doing? And there's an interesting thread. If you look up uh, Uncredible Adventures, you'll find my user on Reddit. You can look through my past posts and you'll find this thread. And I 
thoroughly recommend you do if you're at all interested and have a read through some of the responses. But in summary, here's what I learned. Thank you to everyone that commented. But effectively, if you've got a huge, imagine this is a huge ship like this. Now, the vast majority of crew were required for the operations. It's a mining ship, so it's traveling through space. It's a transport vessel to get people to an asteroid, which they would mine, and then bring what they've mined, but, you know, refine it on board and bring back. So the vast majority of the crew of the ship would be employed in mining. And then additional members of crew were required because as soon as you have that bulk of people that you're transporting, you need to employ chefs and cooks and cleaners and people just to maintain that community. And there are bars on board, so you have bartenders and social clubs and it's a floating a floating community and then presumably you need security to to manage those people and hr and all the rest of it so the the, the actual crew that are flying the ship can be pretty slim and it can be something that doesn't need a huge amount of people but you can still have hundreds of crew and i, I guess it's a bit like if you imagine a a huge hotel where need a staff of a hundred people to run a hotel that has a thousand guests you know it'd be a very big hotel but you need everyone from someone to maintain the swimming pool to people manning reception to the chefs to the uh, chambermaids to the cleaners you you name it whereas actually if you get rid of all the visitors and all the guests and everyone that's staying then in order to to maintain and run a hotel and survive in it well actually you only you could do it just a couple of people living in staff quarters using just a small part of the building so they don't need to maintain the rest of it and that's yeah i found that interesting look it's i've got a bit sci-fi there i know this isn't very very interesting to me just to see that people got involved thank you everyone that commented on that thread i hope i did a little bit of justice to some of the answers there i thoroughly recommend everyone in fact i'll stick a link on twitter so twitter at incredible pod you'll find me Instagram at Uncredible Adventures. You've got a Facebook page too, which I think you just need to search for Uncredible Adventures. And just to give this uh, podcast a semblance of structure to make it feel like this wasn't just me completely rambling and going off in a, a totally wrong direction. Of the main characters in Red Dwarf, you've got, let's say, Lister and Rimmer. One, Lister is a, is a kind of slob and a dirty, lazy human being. But he's the good guy. He's he's the one you're rooting for. And Rimmer is the opposite. He's very, keeps himself very smart. He has a short and sharp haircut and is interested in the military and doing everything properly like this. But he's a, a complete jerk. But an interesting thing happens if you hold them up against some of the morality check tests that I talked about earlier. So the trolley dilemma... I'll tell you now that, that the Rimmer, who's the guy that we don't like, would take the trolley back 10 times out of 10. He'd be fastidious about returning it to the right place and making sure everything was in its place. So he passes the trolley test that says that he is a net positive contributor to society and someone that can self-govern. Whereas Lister is a total slob. He's the type of guy that would use the trolley to take his beer home and then abandon it in the street. He's an absolute negative on that scale and he would like i said earlier an absolute savage he can only be made to do the right thing by threatening him with the law but on the other one that i talked about where if you pressed the but on the other piece that i was the the question that i posed earlier which was about if you've got a railway track and you've got five people tied on one track and if you pull a lever you'd divert the train to run over one person. Would you pull that lever? And I said, the difficulty with this question is however you answer, someone can escalate it. They can make it bigger. They can make it, take it to a more extreme level until you finally crack. And one of the things that someone might do is they might say, well, actually, you've got five people who are going to be hit by the train if it goes down one track. If you pull a lever, it will go down that other track and it will hit one person. But that person is you. So would you sacrifice yourself for five people that you didn't know? And we talked about governing and self-governing, and I talked about how Arnold 
is the guy we don't like, but then give an example that he would be self-governing and he'd do the right thing with the trolley. But the central premise of the show and the character is that Arnold would not pull the lever. He would sacrifice five people to save himself because he's a coward. Unless, unless you read the books. Uh, if, you've, what, only, if you've only seen the TV show, yeah, I'm doing it again. If you've read the books, um, Last Human, I think in particular, he does sacrifice himself at the end. But the character would not sacrifice himself. And that's why we don't like him. Whereas Lister, although he'd never take a shopping trolley back, although he is not self-governing, he would sacrifice himself to save five people. Make of that what you will. I don't know what to make. It's an, it's an observation. I don't have an answer. Give me an answer. What am I searching for there? Apart from having just trashed the entire first half of the podcast. Anyway, this has been Uncredible Adventures. It's episode number five. I'm going to call it The Trolley Dwarf. Uh, might make it interesting enough for someone to, to click on the link. Thank you very much for joining me. Please, wherever you are, subscribe to the podcast. If you liked it, please leave me a review. If you didn't like it, hit me up on Twitter. Let me know. Tell me about it. At IncrediblePod on Twitter. I'm here, really willing to engage with you. Love to hear what you have to say. Please join the community. We're starting to get a bit of traction. Like I said, number one stand-up comedy show on Good Pods. The world is our oyster. We're just starting. But until next time, I am Cornelius. This is Uncredible Adventures.